What is up, everybody? Welcome in to this week's edition of Tuesdays Are For Talking. I'm your host, Nathan Brown. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Matt Rash. Matt and his wife, Christy, are church planners and missionaries in Marseille, France. They're a part of our global Every Nation family, and of course, they are friends and family of this local church. So we wanted to connect with them, hear a little bit more about what's going on in their ministry. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's get right to it. Here we go. Well, Matt, I'm so glad to have you, man, on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, several weeks ago, we had you in to talk with our staff. And as we were talking, I was listening, I was thinking, man, this guy is great. We should definitely have a conversation with him on our Tuesdays or for Talking podcast. So thank you, first of all, for being here today. Hey, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here. So obviously you've been sort of connected to our church for years now, but a lot of people probably don't know who you are, haven't heard your story. And so if you would, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, where you're from, and how in the world you ended up in Marseille, France. Well, it's always a a funny thing to start at the beginning. Back in 1994, well, you know, I grew up in a Methodist church and understanding the idea of God, but not really ever hearing the gospel. And then when I got to university, I started getting confronted with philosophy professors and strong Christian believers out there trying to tell me, you need to get saved, give your life to Jesus. And then I'm in philosophy class and the philosophy teachers are teaching why God doesn't exist. And so it's just that classic university student kind of trying to put it all together in their head. But in 1994, my sophomore year, I really had a supernatural encounter with Christ and was radically born again. And and that began like a, a long journey into campus ministry, church planting, and eventually missions. So now I married my wife in 2000, and we've been missionaries since 2005 to Europe. We were in Austria for a couple of years, and then we were in Budapest, Hungary for two years. And then we've been in France the last almost, oh gosh, about 11 years now, I guess. And we've had the opportunity to win people to Christ all over Europe and and build campus ministries. And now, of course, we have a church here in Marseille that we've planted, and we have a vision to plant more churches out of that. Our children are 17, 15, 13, and 12 at this point. That's us in a nutshell. That's awesome, man. So in those early days of missions work, was that also church planting or what, what kind of stuff were you doing before you got into planting the church there in Marseille? Yeah, Austria was our first long-term assignment. I had strategized and recruited and, and built uh, a team of people to come into Europe and they would be coming in waves every year, another family or two and And so when we first arrived in Innsbruck, Austria, it was to help the local church reach university students primarily and also be a boost to the local church and any other local churches in the German-speaking world. So what that entailed was starting a new campus ministry in Nuremberg, Germany, another one in Salzburg, a youth outreach there, and then restarting a college ministry in Innsbruck. And all three of those ended up thriving, and we were able to train up uh, local leaders, Austrians and Germans, to take those on, which it, it basically liberated us to, to, to say, what's next? And so we moved to Budapest, and then that was a church plant, and I did serve primarily on the college campus, as well as the co-pastor, primary role, just trying to learn what it meant to plant a church in a cross-cultural environment. Mm. Uh, because my wife and I, we really believe that that was our next step. 
Nathan, was we felt like in our hearts and our souls, we were called to plant a church in Europe somewhere. But as you can imagine, church planting is not exactly the easiest thing you could choose to do with your life. I mean, just pastoring a church is, is pretty intense. But then try to go plant one is pretty intense. Then try to plant one cross-culturally in the same language as another level, but then try to do cross-culturally in another language, and you have to learn that language before you start. And that's pretty much what we did. And to, and to cap it off, the Holy Spirit told me, don't recruit a team, bro. I've, I've got the team for you. And so I went, we literally showed up at language school with nobody on a team and just said, Jesus has called us to Marseille. Now, What's funny about that, Nathan, is so many people gave their 100% approval of this great idea that Matt and Christy and their four kids all get up and go to, to, to Marseille, France alone. We got to talk about your inner circle here at some point, but uh, yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that. So that that's what got us basically to language school, this, this heart for lost people, but I don't know if you want to hear it, but I... You know, the reason we picked Marseille after Budapest was really because I we had been praying for Jesus. Where do you want us to be? I don't I don't want to just go go to a city and try to plant a church without having some kind of word from God about that. Not because some other man thought it was a good idea or some missiologist said, what a great strategy, go to this city. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people do that. And then I was happy to serve other people in their visions. But when it comes to you or a, a person actually planting a church and being the point leader, the pioneer, the one who carries the burden, I felt it was absolutely necessary that we had a word from God and it be solid as, as, as gold. And so that's where, you know, near our end of our time in Budapest, I was in the shower just praying and worshiping. And Jesus visited me, probably because it was the only place that was quiet enough I could get alone with Jesus. We had four babies and they're crying and running around. And I think it was midnight. And I'm, I'm having this vision with Jesus in the shower. And uh, don't take that too far. You never know uh, <laughs> where people can run with that. Jesus hanging out in the showers with people. But anyways, it, it was a great powerful vision. God showed me the coast of Marseille and all of these these Frenchmen and these North African Muslims, and they were standing on the coastline staring at me with mouths open, and they were just staring like I was supposed to feed them or give them something. And, and when I looked to my right, Jesus was actually floating. The two of us were kind of like levitating on the Mediterranean Sea, looking at them. And Jesus pointed to them and said, I have hidden treasures for you to find there. Go. Wow. And man, I tell you, I got out of the shower so fired up. And I told my wife, of course, she's already asleep, baby sleeping next to her. You know, it was not the best prophetic moment. She, so she was maybe... I don't know. I don't want to put her in a bad light, but she says, well, we're going to have to ask for confirmation on that. So I said, sure, absolutely. So she's like, Lord, if that's really you, give us a supernatural sign in less than 24 hours. Amen. And she went back to sleep. And I went, well, God, you you heard that, Lord. <laughs> if she was here, man, she'd be poking me in the ribs, I know. But honestly, God showed up in less than 24 hours. And I'm telling you, 
some amazing ministers like Pastor Jim LaFoon and other prophetic voices stepped in in that 24-hour and then within a week as well. And bam, 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 everything lined up. And it was so supernatural that you can't argue with it. And so having that strong of a word is what gave my wife and I the power, the persistence, the perseverance to show up in a land with no friends, no family, and start at point zero with a brand new language and say, we trust you, Jesus, because you said, and we quoted his word back to him sometimes multiple times per day, and just said, we know you are true to your word. We know you can do it. If you said it, it's going to come to pass. And I'm telling you, day after day, the discouragement, the things that would happen, and then there, God would show up with a new sign and a new miracle, and he just let us know we we're on the right path. And anyways, it was, it was really a, an amazing journey, those first five years before we ever planted a church. <laughs> Man, that is quite a story. Uh, I can only imagine uh, coming out of the shower and waking up my wife with a baby to tell her a story like that. But I, but I, I've had those moments, man, where the Lord does speak to you, and it's like when when Jesus speaks, nothing else matters. You know, I mean, we we That's talk right. about that and we sing songs like that, but if you haven't experienced that, it's really hard to to, to wrap your mind around what it feels like to get a go from God. And so I, it just gets me excited listening to you talk about the go from God that you have. That's an amazing story too. I mean, just standing, uh, floating, I guess, on the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it's incredible. And and I do love when God says, I have treasures for you. That's that's an exciting and terrifying thing to hear, I'm sure. So talk, talk to me a little bit about, man, I'm sure you were experiencing like the joy and the excitement of God's with me. And I know this is going to be really hard. How, how did you process all of that? Very carefully. You walk one day at a time with Jesus and we we can't take on the wholeness of a vision all at one time. Uh, if the vision comes from God, it'll be so much bigger than any one of us can do. Number one, by ourselves, probably number two, within our lifetime, but definitely not without a lot of prayer and just crying out to Jesus. So that's pretty much my approach. Oh, God, help. You know, I believe, help me in my unbelief is kind of one of my life mottos and Man, God, if you said it, I know it's got to be true, and you're going to bring it to pass. Your word uh, is true, and you will bring it to pass. So one of the things that was the most encouraging along the way was the little signs that God would give us to encourage us that we were on the right path. We were speaking conversational French at that point, which I would not call fluent, fluent French, but well on our way. And we would stand outside the the gates of the school while we waited for our kids to come out or we would take them up there and drop them off. And I'm smiling, kind of hoping I'm going to find somebody that smiles back so I can have an opportunity to say, to say bonjour <laughs> and that maybe they would respond to me. Maybe they would start a conversation. And that's how I looked. And, you know, the first week of school, it was interesting because it took three or four days, and then there was a lady who came up to me about the third or fourth day, and she says, hey, are you that new American family that came here? We don't have any Americans in this whole area of Marseille, and I love Americans. And I thought to myself, praise God, found somebody who actually likes Americans. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the win is so small, but I'll take it. And then the second, I said, yes, my name's Matt. What's your name? And she says, my name's Emmanuel. 
and I just heard Jesus saying, I'm with you. Wow. And I just, I just, I just got so encouraged and, and her husband, his name, uh, Christophe. And, and, and so we got to meet them and, and get to know them really well. And God opened up the door to share our faith with them and so forth. And that opened up a lot of other doors and that, but that was one of the little signs in the very beginning that showed me God was in this. And it's been a, a journey of little signs and wonders up until the point where you start having some breakthroughs, you start understanding the culture better, the language starts flowing more fluently, people start taking notice of what you're saying, they want to know you, they want to spend time with you. And slowly but surely, that's our, our journey has been building relationships, doing different kinds of outreaches, experimenting to see what's the best presentation of the gospel contextualized for the Marseillean people, the French people around us, and then find where we're winning and then just go ahead and maximize those moments and maximize those strategies. And it took us four and a half years to win enough people on the university campus and among some couples to actually start a church. And here in Marseille, the average size at that time of a church was about 25 people. And I found out later the reason is because you have to have a minimum of 25 adults to actually start a church and to register yourselves. So that was interesting because we needed 25. And so when we hit around 30 people in our small, small group Bible studies, we realized, okay, let's just try some Sundays. And so we did it. We tried once a month and it went so well that, I mean, we had lots of misfires the year before. We've, we've, I mean, we've done just about everything, tried anything and everything we could. And by the time we actually, it actually all worked. My wife and I were really worn out. <laughs> it was kind of like, hey, it's actually moving forward. More people are coming to know Jesus and people are joining the church. Now it's, well, I don't know if I have any energy left now. <laughs> it's taken four and a half years to get to this place. Yeah. <laughs> that's the reality of some mission fields. Man, that's a that's a pretty wild wild thing. To four and a half years, you get boots on the ground. You're four and a half years before you start the church. I mean, I can only imagine the ups and downs that you went through. And how many two a.m. nights you had laying there thinking, "Is this what what we're doing? Is this is this working the way it's supposed to work?" But I I, I love what you said early about needing a firm word from God, and that's why right? It's the, the four and a half years exactly of right. waiting for stuff. You got to have something to stand on better than uh, than just, this sounds like fun. Uh, this sounds like fun doesn't get you through four and a half years of, uh, of trying to start a church, does it? No, it doesn't. But i tell you what, what really, for somebody like me, I'm an extrovert, obviously, and I enjoy people. I thrive off of being around people. And so one of the things that helps me is I create atmospheres that help me understand I'm gaining some successes and some wins along the way. And so one of the first things we did is we, we hosted a little Thanksgiving party at our house, invited four French families that we met in those first three months. And they loved it. They wanted to come over and hang with us. And you know what? We didn't talk about Jesus or God at all, but we called that a win. French people hanging out with us. And I think the second thing we did was a men are from Mars and women are from Venus, three week little French DVD. We ate food together, watched 30 minutes and talked about it. It had nothing to do with Jesus or God either, but it helped them in their marriages or in most of the cases, their, their relationships, because most French people don't get married, but it showed them we cared for them. And, and one older gentleman there, he said, I got a question, Matt. He's probably about 62 at the time. I said, yes, Vital, what's up? He says, what is this? Are we your church? 
<laughs> I, said, I said, no, Vital, you're not my church, but God bless you. If you want to join my church when we start one, you're more than welcome. <laughs> but, it, but it gave me a sense of winning, even though we weren't there yet. It just, it's, it's those little baby victories, those little battles, uh, just inviting people over to your house and making it through the evening and not using bad French language so terribly they don't come back the next week. Hey, hey, we'll take that as a win. That is huge. That is huge. So here in Austin, you know, when we, when we're trying to evangelize people and to, you know, to build relationships and share the news of Jesus, a lot of the obstacles we deal with are, seems like kind of a combination of either like intellectualism, you know, I've, I've gotten smart enough. I don't need that anymore. Or people who were raised in some type of you know, watered down religious activity type. And so they, they just say, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't need that. And and the more you talk with them, you, you know, only God knows the heart, but you don't hear sort of a, you don't hear like a life giving relationship with Jesus coming out of their mouth, you know? So, so you're dealing with people who sort of feel like I've checked the religious bucket or I've outgrown that where you are in your context. What are the, what are the big obstacles that you have to presenting the gospel to people in Marseille? I mean, what has a stronghold on that area in in people's lives? Well, maybe I just, maybe I can just pull out and give kind of a macro look at, at Marseille first because that'll help people understand the different influences that are very strong here. Some of them are, are French-wide, but most of them are, you know, kind of nuanced to Marseille. So one of them is the fact that 25% of our population is from Algeria and Tunisia uh, because of the French uh, colonization of Algeria and Tunisia in previous decades. There are basically deals for the Tunisians and Algerians to come and go as they please almost. And so we have a large population, which as most people know, that's 99% Muslim. And then of course we have other Muslim nations that are represented as well, like Morocco, etc. So that makes up about almost a third. Some most people say between 30 and 30%, 33% of our population is at very minimum culturally Muslim. There is a, also another statistic, 10% of Marseille is actually Jewish, which makes it, I think, the largest or the second largest population of Jewish people outside of Israel in Europe. And then on top of that, you've got your classic French people, which have been obviously raised in a extreme secular humanist environment. And when I say that, I use the word extreme because I know what Austonians think when they think secular humanist. Most people in Texas, they kind of go, where are the secular humanists? Oh, go to Austin, you know, (laughs) keep Austin weird, etc. But at the same rate, there is a flavor of kind of what you face there in Austin. People are kind of like, yeah, I studied that already when I was like 10 in school. Or, yeah, I know about that guy, Jesus, even though they've never read the Bible, they've never read the New Testament. They just had somebody say, okay, here are the major figures of world religions. And they, and they sweep over them, and every, every one of them gets 10 minutes, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, 10 minutes, you know, Buddha, 10 minutes, Jesus, 10 minutes. And they just kind of throw them all together. Here's your drive-by class on religion. And then most of their efforts are to actually dissuade students in the education system from ever believing in God or anything outside of the five senses. So when you have a system that's been created like that since the French Revolution, right after the American Revolution, the French Revolution basically said, 
we oust all religious and monarchical powers from running our government. We reject it all. So whereas in America, it was more of a rejection of uh, a foreign government running our affairs and us not having proper representation, the French were saying, we're sick and tired of the royals being married with religion and, and them shoving it down our throats. And so they rejected, they murdered priests in the streets. They murdered uh, Christians, pulled them out of houses. They, they beat them. They, they, they persecuted them very harshly. Up until that point, there had been two, 300 years of, of martyring, murdering and killing Protestants and putting them in the galleys right off the coast of Marseille is the Chateau d'If, where if anybody knows Alexandre Dumas's Count of Monte Cristo book is, takes place right off the, the coast of Marseille. And I've been there and it actually has a plaque and it says dedicated or in memory of the 300 years of impro- imprisoning Protestants on this island. Wow. The, the, the kind of persecution against Protestants, number one, was huge. But, but secondly, once the French Revolution hit, they kicked the Catholics out of anything governmental state affairs, anything public. So you have this kicking out of religion, but they absorbed another religion, the religion of secular humanism. And Mm -hmm. and the French, by and large, have worshipped at that altar for 200 years, and therefore you see multiple generations. Well, Matt, obviously we're recording from, I'm not sure how many thousands of miles away across the Atlantic Ocean. You're in Marseille, France. I'm in Austin, Texas, and we experienced a drop as you were talking to us about the French Revolution and sort of the, the, the generational effect of humanism. So if you would, just, just jump back into where you were there talking about multiple generations of people who have just rejected religion of all types, man. Yeah, I'll try to kind of set it back up. So since the French Revolution in the late 1700s, you have over 200 years of indoctrinating the generations and creating doubt and unbelief and in people who want to believe in God. And thus you have not just people who my parents were believers, but I've rejected God, or even my grandparents went to church, but you know, my parents and us were atheists. Now you have like six generations ago, maybe there was a Christian in the family. Now the difference is, is that you will find some of them that said, but I've been baptized. Because in the cult, the culture is so strong in some families that they still go to the Catholic Church from their babies and get that little baptism thing done or sprinkling or watering or whatever you want to call it. Clearly not what we would consider biblical baptism. But anyways, they, they go through the ceremony because, because they don't want to miss out on what culture says is right and wrong, even though they'll, they'll sit there and look at me and they'll tell me, but I don't, I'm not a believer. And one of my favorite conversations to have with people is like, okay, so are you a Christian? No, 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 I'm Catholic. Okay, that's an interesting thought. You're not Christian, but you're Catholic. Did you know that Catholics are a part of Christianity? No. Did you know even what Catholics believe? Yeah, yeah, God, you know, Jesus or something. I was like, no, Catholics believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you believe that? No. Okay, well, Catholics and Protestants, of course, we believe that Jesus uh, was the Son of God, was God. Do you believe that? Oh, no, that's just weird, man. I said, man, you're the worst Catholic I've ever met. 
And then, of course, they look at me and I start smiling and they all start laughing. And I go, they're like, yeah, you're right, man. I'm a terrible Catholic. I'm, I'm, I'm probably more like a practicing atheist <laughs> with, with, with my little baptism badge that I like to say, hey, when I was, you know, six months old, I got that water on me, that holy water. That's got to count for something, doesn't it? This is uh, so, just like a just in case, like just in case I'm still good. <laughs> but I don't really have to right. believe this. That's right. And so most people, when you just get down to it, they, they have serious doubts, and just like people in Austin, you're going to have people who say, I have a hard time believing in God because of the problem of suffering. Why do good people suffer? Why does anybody suffer if God is real and he's good? Yeah. And so the existence of God is put into question. The you know I've heard it quoted on several different uh, legitimate evangelist sites that ninety percent of atheists are actually just mad at God. You know they don't actually have any proof, or they're not actually convinced God's not real. Mm. They are just so mad because of a serious loss or a suffering in the family that seems so unjust that if God is good, I've got some questions He's got to answer because it's just not right. So we do face a lot of that over here. Yeah, that's that is a huge question, and really, I mean, that question it hasn't shaped for me whether I believe in God or not, but it has shaped my theology quite a bit. You know, if if you don't have a good theology of suffering, uh, you can you can be in real trouble when you get outside of the the glass house of religion and start dealing with you know quote real people. And so it's it's really really important. This isn't necessarily intended to be a theological podcast today, but it's interesting to hear you say that. This is my world. This is your world. If you, if we are going to be serious about just sharing the love of God with people everywhere we go, we've got to kind of be ready for the different rebuttals that are going to come our way. And you know what's funny about it is, I know it's like you said, not meant to be theological, but I mean, life is kind of theology. Sure. And everything we believe is going to create our values and our and our and our behavior as well. And so when we think about it. And we, and we come to a good place in our thinking and our theology that it helps us actually help others to come into better thinking about these issues or at least question what they've always assumed. And that's been one of my greatest uh, strategies in evangelism for 25 years is helping people question their presumptions. When you get into those kinds of situations in particular with people coming in from Muslim areas, that that's a little different, right? That's that's not probably. I'm guessing. I mean, uh, you can fill in the blanks here, but I'm guessing that's not so much atheistic. That's people with a strong ingrained religious value system. But you're dealing with obviously the thoughts about Jesus and about Christians. It's it's got to be interesting to sort of bifurcate your evangelism activities between the humanist and then those who are steeped in the Muslim religion. Talk to us a little bit about how you toggle back and forth to reach both of those people groups all in the same place. Well, that's why we start with free hugs, because loving people <laughs> just spreads. But, you know, it makes it a little harder with the COVID-19 situation. You know, you can't exactly go out and give free hugs. Otherwise, people think you're cursing them. That's that, right. It's kind of like a big backfire. It's like, I love you by wearing my mask, or I love you by keeping two meters away from you. But I think one of the things we would we would say is just always love people and always assume the best. Always believe in people that that there's something good, there's something that they need. There's a hurt, there's a pain, there's a 
There's a story. Try to get to know people, hear their story. Try to build relationship with people before you go off trying to, to preach to them and so forth. So I think, I think it's real important that you always lay the groundwork that we're here to build relationships that are loving, that are kind, that are, that are blessing other people's lives. We're not, we're not out here to get something from people. We're here with good news, really, really good news, the best news that ever existed. And I want to have that opportunity to share that in the right moment. But just blasting people like I used to do in the mid-90s on campus <laughs> with Pastor Morgan, that doesn't really exactly work. <laughs> so one of the things we, we do is, is when we engage people, we, we find out what is it that really burns in them? What is their passion? What is it that's chapped their hide, as we'd say in Texas, or, or makes, you know, makes them just yell and scream and get all upset or get all happy? And one of the things we do is just ask questions, you know, and I think one of the, when you, when we're talking to a classic Muslim, we know that 80% of Muslims are cultural Muslims. They're not really strict practicing Muslims. The 20% that are strict, and there are plenty of them here in Marseille with over 800,000 Muslims in Marseille in our 2 million population, that makes wow. a lot of people, yeah. even that 20%. You know, and they fill the streets for prayer times. They block traffic. They, they, they're in, in some ways to the French people, they could be considered a, a big nuisance. Lots of French people have a hard time with that. But, but the conversation is different with them. Once love and relationships established, then we're talking about people who actually believe in a higher power. The other thing we've, we've found is most of them, of the 80% cultural ones, have mixed a lot of witchcraft with their Islamic beliefs. And, and then the other thing we've noticed is most of them have not learned much about Jesus. And so the opportunities to talk about Jesus, whom they know is a prophet, and that prophets don't lie according to the Quran, is the perfect opportunity to be able to, to help them come closer to Jesus and, and bring them to faith. It just reminds me of a lady uh, named Sabrina, who one of our couples in our church, our leaders, they moved in two and a half years ago, met their neighbors, Sabrina and her husband. And Sabrina comes from a tribe called the Shawi people. And the Shawi people in Algeria are an unreached people group in the world. They're a little bitty group. They're, you know, I don't know many how many thousands, but there's not a lot. But few of them have moved up to Marseille, several thousand. And they're kind of tucked in, but very unreachable because they're very protectionist. They're very strong and stubborn and argumentative. And, and Sabrina, when, when our friends Taya moved in and her husband, Anthony, she just got aggressive with them and let them know, don't come close to me. But over the last two and a half years, Taya and Anthony won their hearts. And she just started asking more and more questions about God, about Jesus. And next thing you know, she started coming to church about a year and a half ago, maybe once a month, once every other month. Her husband, not so much, but he would come with her just to honor her and bring their kids. And next thing you know, we look up and one Sunday, her husband's not there. She walks back to go get the communion elements. Wow. And I'm kind of, I'm looking at Taya going, hey, 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 can you go talk to her? I'm not sure what's going on here. And so Taya <laughs> runs back there and goes, you realize if you take communion, you're saying, I believe in Jesus. I want Jesus to be my Lord. 
I receive his sacrifice. I want to live for Christ. And she said, that's exactly what I want. Come I'm on. sick and tired of living my own life, and I don't believe in Islam. Jesus is the only way and the truth. And so she, she received Christ right there, took communion with Taya for the first time. And that was probably about eight months ago, and her life has been transformed. Two weeks later, she stood up in front of the elementary school where there's all these Shawi people, and she announced to all her Shawi girlfriends, I'm serving Jesus Christ. He's the real Messiah and the one we've all been waiting for. Wow. It's not The answer's not in Islam. It's in Jesus, and he set me free from the inside. Wow. And she just about got beat up because they're a very violent group of people. And these women began to scream and to yell at her and tell her, you've mm. been deceived, you've been... And they started grabbing her and pulling her and pushing her. And it was a pretty borderline violent moment. And she wow. got out of it. And, and slowly, these last six months, we've been helping her pick them off one at a time, sharing her faith and loving on them. And anyways, it's been a really wonderful thing to see her life uh, on fire for Jesus. And, and she's, she's a fiery evangelist getting ready to be unleashed on all North Africa. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, when you take people who are, you know, stubborn and passionate and all of that, and then you, 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 they come to Jesus, they turn into some of the greatest evangelists. I'm sure you don't know anything about that being stubborn and passionate and hardheaded. And, oh, and, no, and, no, and no. so you're the perfect guy to disciple people like that. Man. I, I love that story. <laughs> yes, I am. Morgan could attest to that. You know, we were roommates for a couple of years there and, you know, I do have to honor Pastor Morgan, you know, I was pretty stubborn, arrogant, and thought I knew what I was doing. And Morgan got saved after me, but he knew the Bible inside outward. In case you didn't know this, Morgan has got a mind that works just overtime. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got like a liquid cooling system up in there that helps his, his microprocessor not burn up. But anyways, he, he, he was the one that took the time to just come sit down with me and go, Matt, you, you're wrong here, or you're you're coming at this in the wrong spirit. And I was so stubborn and so argumentative, but you know what? After two or three times, he he finally started getting through. And anyways, because of Morgan, I'm you know I'm still in the ministry today. And and you know he was a student who knew the Bible better than me. And here I was, this brand new campus minister trying to get started, and I was screwing the whole thing up more than I was helping people. But that's the power of confrontation, of love, and of relationship. When we invest and we love people well, we have the right to speak into their lives, and hopefully we stay teachable enough to eventually receive it. <laughs> Man, what I love about both stories that you just told is it just sounds so much like Jesus. You know, G Jesus was loving and relational with the people who really needed him. And he was confrontational, which I'm sure was still rooted in love, of course, but with the religious people who thought they had it figured out. And, and of course you see, you know, with some of them, Nicodemus comes to mind, you know, they, they come back around and start asking more questions. Hey, help me out with this. So sometimes the confrontation works, but, but for sure with those who are outside the family of faith, man, I, I love what you're saying, which is that, that, that love works. And, you know, when we say love wins. We may not necessarily mean the same thing that other people uh, mean when they say that phrase, but we, we still believe that's true. Love does really win. Uh, you've got some really great stories, but I'd love to hear the story about how your church is adapting right now in the time of COVID. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting time. We talked a little bit about you know, you probably saw, or maybe you didn't. I don't know exactly. You'll have to tell us what the what the American news consumption is like in France. But you know, Madonna came out early in the the, the COVID 
cycle here and said, well, this is, you know, it's the great equalizer, right? Like we're all in the same boat. And of course that's not true because, you know, when things like this hit, they're going to affect people that are already on the underside of power and privilege and oppression. It'll hit them much harder than people who are on the, the, the other side of that. But, but there is a truth that we're all experiencing some of the same things. It's not affecting us in the same ways, but we are experiencing some of the same things. So we've over here, we're two months in now to not being able to meet in person. When did that start for you guys? When did y'all finally have to make that decision or did the government make it for you? And talk to us about how you've been trying to still minister and keep your church together while you can't get together. Yeah, you know, that confinement officially came down on a Saturday night at 8 p.m. Glory. (laughs) I can imagine I was... We're all ready for church the next morning and 8 p.m. The president announces starting as midnight, we are confined. There will be no gatherings in public spaces, churches, etc. <clears throat> and so we, we we changed real quick and we did a little Facebook Live right away. We, were, we did that about a week uh, before America went on its version of lockdown confinement. And here all restaurants closed. There's no pickup, there's no takeout, there's no anything there. And also you have to have a written authorization filled out to leave your home. The good news is, is you get to fill it out yourself and sign it yourself. So classic French bureaucracy, of <laughs> <laughs> just fill it out and sign it yourself. But, you know, I had been, I have been pulled over two times, asked for my piece of paper. And one time I had it and the other time I didn't. But it was two days before they were relaxing the rules a few days ago. I'd just forgotten. And uh, they said, all right, that's 290 euro fine. I went, "Mm, oh, Lord, please. And my friend who was with me, he's like, oh, come on. And only two days away. And the guy at the police office just laughed and said, get out of here, guys. Go home. And so we were like, thank you. (laughs) But I think, you know, the, the, the type of confinement we've gone through has really forced us online faster than we would have been. We were starting to do our sermons online as a church back in December. So we just do a a Facebook live feed of just the sermons, unsure of copyrights on French worship music, just not wanting to, you know, break the law and so forth. So we went ahead and just went and we said, well, shoot, we did all that. And then we looked into some laws and it looked like nobody cared because we weren't trying to make money on a YouTube page or anything. And so we just went for it. We tried it one week the first week is just my wife and I addressing everybody and talking and sharing. The second week, we actually tried to do like a service Facebook Live, and I accidentally hit the little effects button. If you know what that is, it turned me into a wizard, <laughs> turned me into like an astronaut. I was a fairy floating for a while. My wife was like a little pixie sometimes. Please tell it me this most, is still where we can find it and watch it. <laughs> it's still on our Facebook, Every Nation Marseille page. And I yes. encourage you, go join our Every Nation Marseille page and check out if you, especially if you want to practice your French, that but, is worth um, the price of admission, right? It there, is. Yeah. It is probably the most viewed Facebook video we've ever had, and the <laughs> the, the laughs, the humility I've gone through. Yeah, I've just I've left it up because I feel like the Lord says you still need more humility. So, and I don't even sharing with people. Bring it on, bring it on. I need more humility. Oh my! <clears throat> All that to say is, <clears throat> we learned simulated live <clears throat> the next week. And so we, we made a decision from that point on, we will not do that. And so we started lo- using the online church platform that uh, Life Church uses. 
with Pastor Kroger Shell, which is free for all churches. So we use that and we do Facebook Live at the same time. And what's funny is our viewership went from 75 to 80 people on average just for our sermons that were live from December. It went up to 250, anywhere up to 350 people in the first week, but typically 15 to 30 people just on the Facebook Live, plus another 30 to 40 on our online thing. We're kind of like, we don't even have all these people in our church. So it's really shown me the power of Facebook and and of, of going live. And, and because we're in a place where people don't go to church and they don't even dare go to church, most of that is because they've been told that Protestantism is a cult. Mm. And that if you go in there, you know, especially some of the Catholic priests have, have been known to teach that you'll go straight to hell wow. if you even step foot in a Protestant church. So there's people that we're finding out are actually curious to know what we believe and what it looks like to go to a Protestant church, but they won't ever actually show up at the door. And they're looking, and they see that there's some church called Every Nation Marseille going live in two minutes or whatever, and they click on it. And then we end up chatting with them on Facebook Live, which I I get it. All all the churches are having that. But you got to understand in a French context, our church attendance, which in person is like 50, 60 people. And then we were having another 75, 80 join us on Facebook is is now over 350 every Sunday. Mm. I don't know what God's doing, but I can tell you this much. We're going to take advantage of it and we're going to continue to preach the gospel clearly. I preach the gospel every Sunday now. Almost every Sunday I give an altar call. I invite people to come to Christ. I explain what it means to, to get saved, to give your life to Christ and to be transformed. What are your next steps are? Please, you know, tap this button to talk with one of our people and pray with somebody. I mean, we are trying to develop this faster and faster, and it's actually birthing a new media ministry for pre-evangelism and evangelism mm-hmm. in, in the midst of all of this. So we feel like COVID-19 has been a gift to, in a, in a sense, God, what, what the devil means for evil, God always turns for good. Yes. <clears throat> it's an opportunity to, to see some things we hadn't seen before and then turn that into opportunities for the gospel and for lives to be transformed. You know, Stephen Mansfield said that churches who who do it right during this time will experience tremendous growth during this time. And as I'm listening to you talk, I was just thinking back to to what he was saying about the the season that we're in. And Matt, I don't know where you're going to put those people if they all decide to show up on a Sunday. How many services are you going to have to do? Yeah, we just moved to a hotel. Here's how God works. We got kicked out of the building we weren't able to buy because I, I, I couldn't offer more than a certain amount and he wouldn't take it. And so we, we we started meeting in a hotel, which the only place in Marseille that was big enough that could handle us. And they're the only ones that said yes, one hotel. Everybody else refused us. They don't wow. like working with religious organizations. People always used to tell me, hey, it's hard over here to find locations. It's hard to find a building. And listen, I've, I've been an American. I've looked for buildings in America. I promise you, it's harder in a city that's 2,600 years old and has not renewed its building in, in two, 300 years. So <laughs> take that. Anyways, now that I've gotten finished with my little rant on finding buildings, <laughs> we did find a little hotel. Our, our hotel welcomed us. We had two services in it, and then we were in confinement. So the great news is we haven't had to pay for a single hotel rental for two months, and our church is growing. 
so when we get back, we do have space to grow and we do have the opportunity to put two, two services together. But we'll see what, how it really develops on a physical presence. We'll see how that works. We're, tr- we're trusting it will grow. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like God is using this for sure to sort of force the church to the place where many people live their lives. Whether we like it or not is a little irrelevant. People live their lives online. And so th- th- those of us, you're, you're Gen X as well. I mean, we sort of have that feel for technology, but also a little feel and a affection for the old school, you know, sort of live in the tension between those, those two worlds that, that really traverse time as, as we were growing up and you're a few years older than me, not many. And, and I, and I feel that, but man, these days people live their lives online. And if, if you want to reach people, I'm just convinced now that you've got to be online. We're, we're a little bit on the same trajectory you're on. I mean, we just started dipping our toe into that water last year. And of course, you know, we value being a sort of a community church, if you will, and relationships and gatherings. And, you know, we try not to be event based, though we do events and all that kind of stuff. But, but the fact of the matter is there are people who will view your online service or maybe even listen to this podcast, Matt, they may be listening to us right now that wouldn't step foot inside of a church. We had our first uh, virtual event, if you will, like a church-wide virtual event called TGA, the gospel and last Friday. And we had people uh, attending TGA who had never stepped foot inside of our building. They had just found us online and now they're going to the next step of, of showing up to an online event. And I just, man, I believe God is using this to force churches outside of the box, outside of their thinking. And I'm really excited to hear as, as many boxes as you've already been outside of. Now here's another one that you're getting outside of. And I'm encouraged to hear that God is using it. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Of course, in coming up in ministry, I cut my teeth uh, on leading worship. You know, that was sort of my first foray into ministry was strumming the guitar, singing songs. So what is what is worship music? And of course, I, I, I highlight that because worship, as we both know, uh, theologically speaking, is so much more than just music. You know, it's not less than, but it's definitely a lot more. What is what is the musical aspect of your worship services like? Are you guys infiltrated with the westernized stuff? Is there anything that's sort of culturally mm-hmm. unique to your area, musically speaking? I'm, I'm very curious about that. <laughs> well, you know, it really has everything to, thing to do with the generations. And I think just like I actually cut my teeth on leading in church with worship as well, as well as, you know, being a, an evangelist. But I love music. I've always loved music. I love worship music. I love to keep it flowing almost all day long. And if it's not playing, I'm singing it. And our church is very much into creating great atmospheres with music in French. We are a French-speaking church. We are a French-singing church. We are a French-praying church. The devils come out just as fast in French as they do in English because authority knows no linguistic boundaries. (laughs) But I will say that our culture here that we're trying to reach is mostly the younger generation, the under 40s, and they're mostly like Westerners, they like great music, cool music, more of a, a Western feel, though. I don't mean country and Western, although, you know, I'm fine with that. But it there is the older generation that has that French kind of la viande rose and all of those, those, those flavors. And if you get French people that are over 40 altogether and pull out a, a karaoke machine, we've been We've been in these moments at parties and they all know these old classic songs from the 60s, 70s that were more 
that classic French sound. You definitely got some, you know, what's the the, the, the thing that you squeeze? Accordion. Oh, I can't remember the name. Yes, an accordion in Come there. On, accordion. Where's the that bus? kind of slow cafe feel. And, oh, monsieur, let's go there. And you, you've got that flow <laughs> and that feel of the French. But, you know, in a, in a worship setting, it is very different. And I would say the French have their own stuff that has come out. But they're probably about, the in general, in the church world, they're probably about five, ten years behind where the American church would be, with, with a few exceptions in each city, probably. So maybe 10, maximum 10% is kind of up to what the Australians, the Americans, the you know, different groups who are, who are kind of keeping on the edge. And granted, listen, all over America, you're going to find a lot of people at different places, sure. more modern, more older, more traditional. And so I think we try to mix it up and we try to even modernize some old hymns sometimes. We, we're, we're not stuck in a only this stuff in the last three years. We only do that. We, we mix it up with old school French stuff. It was never that English speakers have or singers have never even heard, mm-hmm. and then we also mix it up with with crossover stuff as well, and and then old and, and new, and yeah, it's just a big. But but we don't have anybody to play the accordion, so we're kind of stuck on that one. <laughs> <laughs> we actually do have someone who can play a banjo, and we've 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 had him do it a couple of times. You know, if you want to get into some old school American music, banjos are wonderful in worship. It's 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 pretty wild. We've done it we've done it once or twice. So are you broadcasting the music now too, or still just the message? Yeah, we are. We, we looked into it, and it just seemed that everything's okay legally. So we're just we're creating simple worship sets, two songs in the beginning, one song near the end, or right after communion, or something like that. And you know, so far it's been okay. We've We've done well. We just tried something new this past week because we finally got liberated to meet with up to groups of 10 now on Monday. <clears throat> and so we actually had four of us try to pull together a worship set for the first time ever recording multiple people at the same time through our new digital soundboard that we're still trying to learn. So I think it's going to be somewhere between lame and quite lame this coming Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling for you, man. I, I think it'll be better than that. <laughs> I think it will. So 10 people. So the, the, they talk a lot over here. I'm sure they probably say the same things. Maybe you can tell us how to say flatten the curve in French. But so have, have you guys achieved that? Is that what they're feeling like, that y'all have slowed this thing down or that you're on the other side of the peak? I mean, what, oh, what's, yeah. what's it like? Clearly, we're way on the other side of the peak right now. I mean, we're having 200 to 500 new cases a day, whereas at our peak, we were more like 4,000, 5,000 cases a day. Wow. And we've been on that downslide as long as we've actually been, as long as we were on the upslide now. So we're <clears throat> we're kind of, I don't know how you do it, like a triangle, symmetrical triangle. We're kind of on that other side feeling like, hey, we've really... We're really almost out of the woods here. And I think, you know, within a few weeks, month, maybe a month, it'll, it'll be kind of more of a thing of the past. Now, whether they actually lack the standards of distance, social distancing and everything like that, that'll be something else to see. As you know, many people are kind of going, eh, I think I'll just hold on to my mask a little longer. You know, my grandma made it for me and it's pretty cool. It's got little tamales on it, you know, so whatever. <laughs> You're at ten people now, and you anticipate have they have they forecast like 
okay, in two weeks we'll expand it to this? Or The closest they've come to saying that is in the beginning of June, we will, as long as the numbers look good, we will lax the standards again. So like our elementary school started back this week if you wanted your kid. But like, oh, wow. I think I think less than 20% of the parents are sending their kids back. Yeah. And so it's created a problem because they'd only open the elementary schools half a day. So parents are like, what? So I'm supposed to go to work for half a day and then just get off? So it's creating actually massive chaos. Most of the French are like, what in the world? This is some scam. Somebody's making money on this for sure. <laughs> because it just doesn't make logical doesn't sense, make sense what they're yeah. doing. And then on the middle schoolers, they're supposed to start back on the 18th, which is, I guess, next week. But my once again, we have an option. And so we've opted to keep our kids at home continue, because they're, they're actually doing online classes mm-hmm. at their normal hours. So they get online. They see what their work is. They spend 15, 20 minutes doing it. And then they're done for 45 minutes. So Christy, my wife, has started supplementing it with some reading and writing classes online and creating some new assignments, but they're not real happy about that. But I'm trying to move them forward in their English skills a little bit. As their French skills are just fine, it's now working on their English skills. So I think June is when the high schoolers are supposed to be permitted to go back. But the reality is, is our high school normally is done around the first week of June, mid-June. Okay. And so I don't even get the, the, nobody gets the purpose why they would do that. So I think churches will probably be allowed beginning of June to start reassembling. So we here in Texas, I guess uh, a couple of weeks ago, the governor said that churches could reassemble if they wanted to. And it's a, it's a weird situation that we're in over here because on one hand, I appreciate that you know, the governor has a disposition towards religious liberty and views the church and pastoring as an essential service, because I think that it is, you know, people's souls Mm -hmm. need cared for just as much, and we could argue far more than their bodies. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, there's, there's a, there's a wisdom thing. So we're in this weird limbo right now where the, the government's given us all the permission. So it's not a right or wrong thing, legally speaking, can we gather, can we not gather? But as with most hard decisions, it's, it's not right or wrong. It's actually wisdom. And so we're we're continuing to persist in a online only environment and see how this goes because I don't I don't know that we're on the other side of it yet. I don't think we've gotten to to where you are. We're still seeing kind of No, you know, when I look at the lines what I've seen for for the US, I don't know necessarily on Texas size, but but it seems like the US is just kind of flatting, it's just flattened and it's just staying the same. And I, I told somebody the other day, I said, I, I'm not convinced Texas needs to slow down a little bit or, or the U.S., the United States, just maybe add another week or two, could have, could have, could have extended a little bit further and then give. But anyways, it's, it is what it is. You can't live in fear and you just have to be wise. That's it, man. It's hard to lead in times like this. That's for sure. Well, Matt, do you have any plans, any trips in mind to come back to the States anytime soon? Or is all this sort of got you frozen over there? Or when will we see you again? Yeah, I was trying to be back there actually in April. <laughs> so that plan got changed. And then, of course, I travel all over Europe probably eight to ten, ten times a year during my school year, during my ministry season. I'm the director for all of our Every Nation campuses as well. So I oversee promoting campus ministry throughout Europe. I lead a team who helps us host an annual conference every year. And then also we do a, a training for student leaders every summer in Marseille for one week up in the mountains. And so we have... 
I actually run an entire whole ministry Europe-wide at the same time. And so this has created like a lot of challenges. And mm. and so on one hand, I'm leading our church. And on the other hand, I'm leading this Europe-wide campus ministry, which is in its best moments it's ever had since we created a leadership team. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm leading that since four and a half years. And so it's been a, a curve moving forward, more and more momentum, more and more students coming to Christ, more and more staff join, joining on board. And, and then, you know, we get hit with this. So, you know, it is probably tough to say where I'm going to be traveling next. But but definitely coming back to the States has got to be a priority because we do have a lot of family members, financial and prayer partners. We love coming to see at least once a year. And I think I was there last October or November. So by the time I get there, it'll probably be October, November, bro. Hopefully we're back to to somewhat normal by then. We'll see what happens with vaccines and all that kind of stuff by then, but it it would be great to see you. Matt, uh, People Mosaic, obviously listening in here, many people love you and and those who hadn't heard about you before until now, I'm sure they're they're growing in affection as they listen to you talk. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. That's right. How can we be praying for you guys as a church and how can we support you in prayer at this time? Well, obviously, prayer for my family is always the first thing I ask for. You know, we carry a significant of strategic weight reaching the people we reach here in Marseille, as well as the position for the campus ministry throughout Europe. And so for me, that's that I don't carry that alone. My wife carries that. She stays behind, watches kids, raises kids. I don't do anything without the, the amazing woman, Christy Rash. So for me, it's prayer for my wife and my kids, first and foremost. And then after that, obviously, pray for me to lead well. Pray pray for our leaders to grab hold of things, to grow, to, to mature, to go deeper. And for that to happen on both the campus side of things in Europe, as well as in our local church. We have a five-year vision to grow this church. And I, I, I say this with all, oh, Jesus, help. You know, this is going to take a miracle and grace, but I'm saying it so you can pray and agree with us. We have a vision to grow this church to 300 people in the next five years. And in that same time, plant at least one, if not two more sites in Marseille near university campus areas, one on the north and one on the south. So join us in prayer for that, trusting God for the finances it's going to take to make miracles happen like that, to reach more people than we've ever reached before, to find the facilities and the buildings or to build them or to buy them, whatever we've got to do. God is an amazing God and he does the impossible. Absolutely, man. Well, we definitely will do that. And I'm sure that our people will. Matt, thanks so much for joining us this week on Tuesdays for Talking. It's been really great to talk with you, to hear some of your stories, to let some other people know about what you're doing. I'm very encouraged today. You've got me wanting to go get in the shower and start praying and see what Jesus might say to me. (laughs) Man, that was incredible. So thank you for joining us today, man. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy and an honor. And I also just want to say thank you to the people of Mosaic, those who don't know me and those who do. You've been our strong moral and physical prayer, financial supporters for so long, and we couldn't do it without you. And we're glad to do it. And we're glad to be partners with you guys. And you always have a place in Marseille. Just look us up. That's awesome, man. Thanks so much for being here. Have a great day. You are very welcome. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.